Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Episode 3, the ripoff podcast within a podcast that now is a spinoff podcast, where I ask Sam questions about episodes of Star Trek that we watched this week. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Hello. This week, we watched The Tholian Web and Plato's Stepchildren. So let's dive right into The Tholian Web. The Tholian Web is the ninth episode of the third season of the series, written by Judy Burns and Chet Richards and directed by Herb Wallerstein. It was first broadcast on November 15th, 1968. On a rescue mission aboard the USS Defiant, Kirk, McCoy, and Spock find that the entire crew appear to have all killed each other in a diseased madness. They soon discover that the Defiant is caught in a part of space that intersects with another parallel universe, and is disappearing. In order to get his crew to safety, Kirk stays behind and is presumed lost, leaving Spock in command. Spock insists on staying to find Kirk, despite McCoy's warnings that lingering in that area will result in the Enterprise crew falling victim to the same madness as the Defiant crew. To make matters worse, a hostile alien species known as the Tholians show up to entrap and destroy the Enterprise. Before we get to the plot of this episode, though, I am being told that Sam has a late-breaking update, or breakdown, of the spacesuits used by Kirk, McCoy, and Spock, and Chekhov, I believe, in this episode. Sam? So, first, you know, congrats for summing up the 37 plots of this episode. It's almost like the like just the Tholian thing is just like an afterthought. Like it doesn't even make any sense. But that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're obviously here to talk about these spacesuits. Now, okay, I don't even know where to start. All right, so you've got a bodycon, sparkly base of this suit. So okay, that's 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 cool. You got like a little. Um, Got a little accent around around the elbow, like a little black stripe. It's belted. I, I mean, it's like a it's obviously like a one piece bodysuit, so you know the belt is just there for fashion, and that's fine. Fashion is important for the future. However, what doesn't make sense is why the lid of a trash can <laughs> is the helmet. Like you know you you know the ones where you like hit the door and it kind of you know spins. That has been replaced by a fine mesh, which when you're going to go into space and deal with other atmospheres and have to BYOO, you always want to have a mesh. Yeah, okay. Anyway, fashion. it is fashion. And, and really, that's the thesis here. This is all fashion. Now, all of that is prelude to. What I assume everyone believes is the best part of this suit, which is the tubing that turns into something like this is I don't even know. OK, so we got a we got a blue hose going up the right arm. We got a got a red hose going up the left arm. We got an orange hose coming up the middle. We've also got a black hose going up the middle that just goes up to the side of the helmet and doesn't appear to do anything. And that's really the whole point of this, right? 
all these tubes come out and they go up and one connects to one hand, one connects to the other hand, one goes to the helmet, one's like a a throat piece. <laughs> but they don't they clear they're, they're clearly not attached to anything. No, this is nothing. Right? Tessa was like, "Is this the dune suit?" And it's not. It's just a tribute to fashion because let's be honest here. And really isn't if that's not what the 60s is about, then what was it about? I mean, right? I have to say though, a future that imagines more sparkles as an everyday part of decor and outfits and life has to be a future worth fighting for, don't you agree? That's right. We talked about that. So, one of the things this show purports is that it's utopian. And so I'll just I'll just say this. I'll come right out and say it. In a utopian future, there would be more glitter and sparkles and fashion accents on everything. And here's why, right? If you think about all the folks in this world who wear sparkly things, design sparkly things, we live in a society today where people... Many, many people just want those people to go away. They don't have to die. They just need to go some other place. That's called a dystopia. Utopia is the opposite of that. Therefore, this kind of fashion, all things queer will be celebrated in a utopian future. Now, that's great when it comes to spacesuits. I still don't want to talk about the thruple, Tessa. Don't trick me. Okay, we'll talk about the thruple indirectly. We'll, no. side, we'll sidle towards it. No. So you complained, I believe it was last week, about the fake-out death with Kirk, right? He's on the Romulan ship, and they pretend that he dies so he can be smuggled, so his body can be smuggled back to the Enterprise by McCoy. We do get a bit of a death here. Now, obviously, we all know that Kirk survives this episode, but the interesting part about this fake-out death is that it actually affects the plot because he's not in this episode for the most part. He's in the beginning and he's in the end. What did you think about removing Kirk, who is generally considered the centerpiece of Star Trek, the original series, from this episode? Isn't Kirk the centerpiece of every series, even the one that he's not in, right? I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, you compare all the other captains to Kirk. I mean, even when you're comparing Picard to other captains, you started comparing Picard to Kirk, I guarantee it. And I mean, like, even the, even the pilot, now we didn't talk about that. We may have mentioned it on Monkey, but the original pilot, and we had the announcement that we're going to get the whole new show with the original captain, right? Yeah, Strange New Worlds. Even though he was the captain first, we still compare Kirk to him, right? We do it all the time. So what was the question? Oh, oh, removing him from the episode? Yeah, that was cool. I, I, you don't need him to blow hard every episode. We get it. Little Kirk goes a long way. Still the titular thing for everything Star Trek, but, you know, eh. Okay, so the space madness part of this, right? First of all, this episode has one of your favorite things besides time travel, and that's parallel universes. Now, we don't get to see the parallel universe in this, but... The idea that the thinness of space here causes this, this drifting back and forth of the Defiant, and it causes this space madness. What did you think about that as a plot thread? 
All right. So to answer this question, I need to do an episode of Tessa Hasn't Watched Fringe Yet, the podcast within a podcast that is now a podcast within a spinoff podcast, I think. The great, one of the great things about Fringe, right? It starts off as a, a eh, like a, like a procedural that is like more sci-fi than the X-Files, but very much similar in that vein. We get Pacey from Dawson's Creek. You know, some good stuff's happening. But what really makes Fringe different is when we start to do the red and blue universes. Because they're, they're the, the parallel universes and the only way we can differentiate with them differentiate them is by color and and so that's that's fun right and as the series goes on the the doorways between the two dimensions becomes more and more porous so my point is this obviously came first but it kind of seems like maybe this is where we got that and i know this because the Defiance was green. You know it's from a parallel universe because it's a different color. This has been an episode of Tessa Hasn't Seen Fringe Yet. All right. And so apparently staying in this part of space will make people go mad and try to kill each other. So this begs the question, since we watched the Day of the Dove last week, Sam, why is it Chekhov who always goes crazy first? Well, you know... We've skipped some episodes, so the red shirt dying thing hasn't fully paid off for me. Because, you know, frankly, most of the episodes we watched haven't had red shirts. And so really, out of the episodes that we've watched, the only certainty that I can think of is Chekhov's madness. Or I guess more to the point, Chekhov's Chekhov. Whenever he's taken down to the planet, you know something's going to happen to him. And, you know, that, that stupid, shaggy Davy Jones hair is going to get all must when he goes crazy. Which, by the way, that's how you know he's crazy. Except for the one episode where his hair started off that way. And it's like, was wardrobe not available? Like, you gotta <laughs> style that, man. It's not, you can't just let that hang out that way. But anyway, you know. You just know, right? Whenever you see Chekhov, it's like, oh, he's going to get done wrong and there's a 70% chance it's going to be he's going to go insane for a while. That's my red shirt moment. So the, one of the big things about this episode is without Kirk, so we remove Kirk from the equation, we get to answer the question or at least explore the question, what happens when Kirk isn't there to mediate in McCoy and Spock's relationship? Because Spock becomes commander McCoy immediately starts questioning him. They're trying to figure out their dynamic now that Kirk is gone and now that Spock is in command of the Enterprise. What did you think about that thread? So many of us have had friends in school. (laughs) Many of us have been in a situation where you are the main friend and you have this friend and you have this friend. And the only reason they're friends with each other is you. Or you might have been one of the friends. But most of us have been aware of that dynamic. And I bring up school because if you've ever been a part of this kind of friendship, when the main character is absent and you guys have to like sit together at lunch and it's weird, 
okay, that's what this is, except they're in command of a starship, so of course they fight. What did you think of Kirk's now, hey now, just get along video that he made for them to watch in the case of his death? So once again, this is like an episode of How I Met Your Mother, right? You know, now that Kirk knows that Spock and McCoy have seen the message, even though they plead that they haven't, he's going to have to make a new one. And he is going to roast the hell out of them on that one. You just know it. Because they've already seen his poignant message of love and respect didn't carry on without me. And I'm going to vomit if we talk about it anymore. But roast them mercilessly on the next one. It's going to be great. I want to watch that one. All right. And like you said, the Tholians, even though the episode is named after them, kind of seem like a, a plot point more than anything else. Like they have to be the external force that's like threatening the ship. So that way McCoy and Spock can figure out how to team up together. But what did you think of our Tetris aliens? It's not really Tetris. It reminded me of a couple of games, but the one it really reminded me of is the one where you're like a little dot and you're drawing a line and you're trying to get from one border to the next border before the little thing in the middle hits your line. It's like, the, you know, it, the game is just drawing lines. And, and so they are basically, I'm not in your rooming the Enterprise by just drawing these lines around them for, I, I mean, I guess they're entrapping them and snaring them, I guess, but it's really for no discernible reason, right? Because the Tholians showed up and they're like, hey, we're going to shoot you. And was it Spock? Or was it? No, no, no. It was, um, it was Scotty who was like, hey, dudes, like, we're going to like, no, they were back on the ship at this point. Well, he'd gotten the information from Spock. So Scotty was like, hey, dudes, like our, our captain is like, you know, trapped in another dimension and it's going to come around in like an hour and 53 minutes. And we'll have him back. And so the Tholians are like, well, you have an hour and 53 minutes and three seconds before we shoot you. And of course, they fail to get Kirk back. So the Tholians shoot them. And then Spock, who is back on the ship at this point, commands that they shoot the thing. And it goes, wee, off into space. And then two more replace it. And they start drawing lines. And that's when he and McCoy start fighting because McCoy's like, you should have left him for dead. Spock's like, nope, I'm the best friend. I win. That's how I remember it. All right. We get a little bit of more of Uhura in this episode when she is in her quarters grieving Kirk and she sees a ghostly apparition of Kirk, becomes convinced that the captain is still alive, tells McCoy. McCoy thinks that she's just being hysterical. And so confines her to sickbay until everybody else sees the captain's ghostly apparition. What did you think of the Ahura hysterical storyline? Is this a starship captain I see before me? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what I thought. It, it kind of felt like a Macbeth riff. I mean, of course they locked her up. I mean, come on, she's acting crazy. And when women act crazy, you lock them up. Remember what I said earlier about utopian future? Never mind. <laughs> we still do stupid stuff in the future because as it turns out, utopia is not real. I believe I said that to you at the time, right? Like things get better, but they're never gonna, you know, completely fix things. No, no, no. It's the, it's the Plato thing. 
Well, we'll get to that. But it's the whole idea of you'll make different. No, that was a different conversation. The conversation we had, and I don't remember what it connects to, is the idea that in the future, you will become better, but you'll always have different problems, right? That you can't possibly, so like Star Trek couldn't possibly predict some of the things that we would look back and go, ew, gross. You can't do that. But they were thinking utopian future. And overall, it's a much better idea of the future than what was real in the 60s, right? And, and, and a lot of the things we look at were much better than they would be now. But then again, something like this, the, this uh, well, she's a woman, so she's hysterical. Or, you know, she, her worst fear is being ugly and old, like from the last episode, right? It's like, guys, how could you not see that was a problem? And yet they did. That's how Utopia works, and that's why you'll never actually get one. But her bedroom is super cozy, though. Uh, Do you have bedroom envy? Yeah, I mean, both of these episodes, we see Uhura out of uniform, and that's good. That's good. Again, that's good. Okay, and finally, I can't help but mention your favorite part of the episode, wherein you turned to me and said, Scotty is my favorite character. And that is the scene where McCoy comes into, I think it's Spock's quarters, where Spock and Scotty are having a meeting about, I don't know, engineering stuff. And McCoy walks in with the antidote to the space madness. And it looks like, I think you described it as mango juice? Was it? No, no, papaya. You described it as papaya juice looking. And he's got it in like a carafe. And he pours them like little shots, and they all take the shots. And he says that it deadens the nerve endings. And so Scotty, Scotty says, oh, well, Scotch will do that. At the end of the scene, Scotty takes the, the carafe with him. Your thoughts? You know, this is one of those I never watched Star Trek growing up. But I was on the periphery of this fandom for a very, very long time. I mean, I saw the, the movie with the whales. I saw that in the theater, apropos of what I couldn't possibly say. But, you know, I knew that most people really liked Kirk or Spock or Bones. They all had their favorites. But I knew there were some weirdos out there who thought Scotty was the best character. And I am here to tell you that those weirdos were right. He is. Yes. Yes. This is not quite the level of Ringo is my favorite Beatle. I want to be very clear about that because there are actually good reasons to think that Scotty is a better character than all the other characters on the show. And it is. When presented with a fizzy juice looking substance that is an antidote and he finds out it has the same effects of alcohol, he says, I'll take that. And leaves. Whole carafe. And they don't stop him. They don't even, like, this has happened before. And, you know, I, I, I just really admire that in a, in, a, in a society that we live in where, you know, you have the drug testing and all the stuff. It's just nice to know that they trust Scotty to do his job, do it well, and he can get blitzed on whatever weird drink they come up with in his off time. It's called delegation. It's called trust. It's called being responsible. And Scotty is the best character on Star Trek. Party on the engineering deck. Woo!
All right, let's move on to the second episode, Plato's Stepchildren. So Plato's Stepchildren is the 10th episode of the third season, and it was written by Meyer Delinsky and directed by David Alexander. It was first broadcast on November 22nd, 1968. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock beam down to a planet in response to a distress call. Ain't that always the way? I feel like I'm always starting these summaries with they're responding to a distress call. You know, for a utopian universe, the people sure are in trouble a lot. People are sure shooting at each other a lot. It's kind of weird. They are in distress quite often. Anyway, they find a culture of almost immortal, telekinetic-empowered beings who are dedicated to following the teachers of Plato because I guess they lived in Athens for a while? This episode is very flimsy and yet great at the same time. They want McCoy to stay as their doctor and they will do anything to convince him to stay, including humiliating and torturing Spock and Kirk. So let's talk. Let's talk. Uh, Let's wrap. Let's talk. Let's wrap. (laughs) What are you? Some, like... Teacher from the 70s? <laughs> what is wrong with you? Plato and Utopia. So here we're given a like mirror image dystopia, right? But supposedly they're following the principles. When I say supposedly, I mean very loosely. We're not actually given a whole lot of information about the mechanics of their supposed utopia, even though they all describe it as a utopia several times. What did you think about the use of Plato in this society? Well, to know about Plato and Utopia is to know a couple of things. Well, three things. One, Plato's a jerk. Well, four things. One, Plato's a jerk. Two, everything that is attributed to Socrates, Plato might have made up, embellished, or just changed. But anyway, that's not important. The third thing to know about Plato and Utopia is that Plato believed in absolutes. Capital T, truth. Capital J, justice. You might have also be familiar with, so this is the last thing, you might be familiar with the allegory of the cave, wherein one single solitary person, he realizes that the life he is leading is a lie. The life that everyone is leading is a lie. He is able to see the truth of the matter capital T truth and everything that it takes to get everyone else to see it. And so he goes back into the cave and says, hey, guess what, everybody? The life you've been leading is a lie. You can come with me. It'll be tough, but we'll all get there together. And because nobody likes hard things, they kill him. Because, you know, the the whole moral of the story is not just anybody can see the truth, but it takes a smart, smart person. So a smart, smart person who would be in charge is what he would later refer to as a philosopher king, which is what we get in this episode, with one caveat. These people have been alive for a long, long time. Philosopher kings should not be allowed to be in charge for a long, long time. Who said that? It was Plato. I mean, that's that's the deal, right? They followed all of his teachings up to the point where he said, don't do this forever. And they were like, now what now? What? No, I didn't read that page. Well, and Kirk even calls them out on it. Actually, it might be Spock who said that Plato believed in truth and justice and that no. he didn't think that they believed in it anymore. So there is a bit of a call out there. But again, I'm not sure how deep. I, I feel like partially this 
episode just really wanted to put everyone in togas. And so that's like where they got this from. I'm not sure how deep they were thinking about it, but there are elements of it in the episode. What did you think about the combination of that style of philosophy with the telekinetic power that these people have gained since they landed on this planet? We find out later it's because they've been eating the food of the planet. Well, this is the idea that is... It's not hard science fiction, but it's definitely that kind of science fiction that meets the fantastic, right? So the idea is, I mean, the idea is one that we played with forever. I mean, there's so many things in pop culture that are based around the idea of we were told that we only use a fraction of our brain, which is, you know, true, I guess. But if you actually study it, I mean, we light up all the parts of our brain doing different things. The point is we don't use it all at once. But the idea here is, of course, if you could use a bigger portion of your brain, just think what you could do with your mind, man, like lifting stuff up and throwing it across the room and you wouldn't have to could have giant chess pieces that you could just think about and would move and you could like enslave people except we don't do that because it's a perfect society except I guess we do do that whoops so anyway this is just this is just the combination of the idea that a perfect society based on Plato's philosopher king would allow us to unlock greater brain potential as they saw it and be able to like move things with their mind man so this to me brings, this to me leads into a discussion of my, fa- I think my favorite and most interesting character of this episode, Alexander, who's played by Michael Dunn, who is one of the Platonians, but he does not have the power. And the theory is it's because he is a dwarf. But so everybody kind of abuses him. He's kind of everybody's servant. And like you said, even though theoretically this is a utopia and nobody is enslaved, The problem with that and the problem with Plato's ideals and the way that he thought of society is that if you are considered unenlightened, then that means that you sort of just exist to help the enlightened people, right? Like you exist to make their lives easier so they can go about being enlightened, meditating, etc. What did you think about Alexander as a character? I find him very fascinating, so I'm curious to know what you thought. You know, I think the most interesting thing about watching Star Trek now with you you know, I'm I'm over the age of 40 at this point. And so there are a lot of threads that I can pick up that I would have had zero chance of picking up on. By the way, and, and this is tangentially related, it would not be enlightenment because, right. because this is all uh, the idea of realizing the, the whole truth, the capital T truth is remembering, remembering. right? Because cause the, the theory here is that when you're born, it's actually your second life. It's an inversion of Christianity. You've had the perfect life before you were born because that was the life you lived with the gods and they told you everything you needed to know. And so life on earth is the attempt to remember that. And Plato believed that the philosopher king system that we see in this episode, without all the bad stuff, is the way to get there. And they are in the episode trying to link that failure to his physical attributes. They're basically trying to make a very clumsy, yet well-meaning statement, I think, about anybody who doesn't look 
like Kirk, basically. I mean, right? So, of course, they get that part of Plato wrong. They would know that that's just wrong. But, of course, they don't care. They just want to be in charge and have power. And Alexander knows this. He, it, this is another thing. It's a tie to Shakespeare, right? Because Shakespeare's fools, and that's what Alexander is. He's a fool. He's the jester. Shakespeare's fool in a drama is always the smartest person. Actually, he's in a comedy. He's the smartest. No, really more just tragedies. Yeah, no, well, yeah, see, that's what I'm yeah. saying. I was thinking about Touchstone, but but when we get to the dude in, um, I mean, even by the time we get to Twelfth Night, which is a comedy, you've got the fool in that one's pretty smart. But the classic one, of course, is is King Lear's fool. But and and true to form in this episode, Alexander is the smartest among them. He does understand the corruption that has occurred. You know, from the very beginning of the episode, when, you know, the whole exigence is, is that, like, dude got nicked with a knife and was going to die because they had no immune system. And Alexander tells Kirk, just let him die. Which seems really insensitive until you get about 10 minutes further in the episode and you're like, oh, I see. I see. Well, and uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy, once they figure out how to sort of get the power themselves, which is how they ultimately get out of this situation, they offer some to Alexander. They tell him, you know, it'll probably work faster on you because you're smaller. And he tells them no. What did you think about that moment? I told you earlier, Plato believed in absolutes. And of course, Star Trek is, you know, at the beginning of what we call postmodernism, a belief that there are no absolutes. But... Alexander's belief here is refusal to want to take this fruit really bears out that phrase, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So that's, that's clearly what he's thinking in this. He does not trust himself because he knows better. Yeah, and of course you also get the line where Kirk tells him, we don't discriminate in the Federation. I was also really happy to see that he wasn't killed off by the end of the episode. I couldn't remember that if he had or not, and I like that he actually does get off this planet. Yeah, it's just a shame we never see him again. But, uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this episode is it really refutes the idea of absolute rule. And, and that's easy to see as a, um, as a take on fascism, maybe a retroactive take on the fascists of World War II but also, of course, because we're always playing democracy versus communism. At this point, we've identified, at this point in history, we've identified that communism is not really happening closely at all to its sibling socialism, right? You know, communism is supposed to have that strong central force to make sure that the basic ideas of socialism can still happen. We know historically that they weren't. I think, you know, a lot of folks speculated that it wasn't happening even then. And so this is, this is a refutation of the idea that one person can be in charge. You know, and of course, the alternative that we see here is the power structure of the enterprise, you know, which we've talked about them as a thruple, or you've tried to and I've refuted it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, Spock, Kirk, and Bones are a version of your id, ego, and superego. They are a version of your dem democratic checks and balance system in America. 
they're supposed to show that, yes, you do need leadership of some sort, but it shouldn't be one person above all. And even if you have somebody in that key executive role, he is perhaps most wise in his ability to listen to other people. Right. So, yeah, so it's nice that we're linking those back together. But, yeah, that's what I think. What was the question again? The way that the fe- he, that Kirk presents the Federation to Alexander as this utopian place where he can fit in, where nobody's discriminated against based on their size, their disability, their the race that they belong to, etc. He gives this whole utopian speech about it. I think also Alexander really relates to the empathy that Kirk shows him because he says nobody's ever put their life over or my life over theirs before. So that was also really interesting. You know what else is really interesting? The ridiculous pranks of this episode. So just just to recap, we have a moment where the Philosopher King makes Kirk hit himself a lot. We have a part where they make he makes Kirk and Spock do the Tweedledee and Tweedledum dance from Alice in Wonderland. He makes Spock through the looking glass. Through the, I'm sorry, through the looking glass. He makes I was thinking of the cartoon. He makes Spock tap dance and almost crush Kirk's head. He makes Spock cry and laugh on cue, which is humiliating and torturous for a Vulcan. He makes Alexander ride Kirk like a pony. What did you think about the ridiculous telekinetic pranks, which most people think are very silly? You definitely sold this episode to me as a bad episode that was central to television history, which I know we'll get to. I distinctly remember you going, you know, that episode was better than I thought. And I think it's a really good episode. I don't know that they knew what nuance was in the 60s. I'm not convinced they knew. But that actually works out here, right? I mean, these these pranks are a way of showing that these guys are full of crap. Their system is stupid. It's not real. And I mean, we might be retroactively dunking on Plato, too. There's a little Aristotelian dunking happening here. So there are three other things that I want to talk about that comes out of this episode. You kind of seem surprised when Spock... Spock has an emotional reaction to the torture, right? And which is uncommon for a Vulcan. And it's implied that he feels ashamed of it and has this like very visceral reaction. But he crushes a... like a goblet in his hand because he's so afraid that he could have killed Kirk during one of those pranks. And you were shocked by this. Did you remember that Spock had super strength? No, the reason I was shocked is that I had forgotten about his super strength because I was thinking a few episodes back where his super mind was the thing that kept him from being taken over by those, by the the terrible ginger child, right? (laughs) And so I was thinking where this plot was going to go is that the Philosopher King underestimates his mental power and he's able to actually break out and that's how it was going to work. That's kind of what I thought we were going for. So there was a moment where I was like, oh yeah, that's right. He's also super strong. Okay. We also get to see or hear Nimoy sing in this episode. They were really, really trying to make him into a musician at this point. Thoughts? Hi. If you're listening to this episode, I want you to know something. While Tessa has heard Nimoy sing, she hasn't heard 
Shatner sing. She calls herself a Star Trek fan. Hasn't heard Shatner sing. Is it not even Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? She said no. But I ask you this. Please write in and tell us the answer. Or your opinion. I'll tell you mine. Which one's better? Nimoy's Hobbit stuff? Or Shatner's cover of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? And why is it Leonard Nimoy? Right? Two-part question. Which one is better? Why is it Leonard Nimoy? I'd be interested to hear your responses. Tweet at us at monkeybacklog or email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. And finally, why I really made you watch this episode is that this episode made television history by having the first interracial kiss on television. It's between Uhura and Kirk, even though it is forced. Your thoughts on seeing this monumentous occasion, act? I'm not really sure what to call it. You know, knowing that it is that historical, it's really disappointing. Right? Because it's done under duress. So don't worry. They wouldn't really do this if they didn't have to because they were being mind controlled. Censors, don't worry. They would never actually do this. I get it. That's not what really bothers me. I can get around that. I mean, you know, makes sense. But they don't even really kiss. And I know what you're thinking. Lots of people didn't really kiss in TV and movies, and they still don't. I understand. But they could have actually done the thing that actors who don't actually kiss do to sell it. So, like, I don't want to take away from it, because I know it's historical, and I know that is really important. But my reaction is, that's not a kiss. That's something different. And that's a real shame that they had to do it that way or it wouldn't count because really it doesn't count which just really says more about NBC and CBS than it does anybody else fair enough so these two episodes recommend worth watching well given the fact that we've talked about them longer than we usually talk about <laughs> in the episodes i'd say yes okay that's it for today join us next time for more sam watches star trek we will be talking about Whom Gods Destroy and Let That Be Your Last Battlefield. You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper.